Hi, I'm Mansi, and this is the Brown Girls Don't podcast, a podcast that talks to different members of the support circle each week to challenge the many ideas pushed onto South Asian women and prove that actually, brown girls do. I am joined by, oh my God, no, I know your guys' names, but now I'm so nervous. I've told you, <laughs> oh my God, that's a good idea. and Layla Mood. Um, meeting IRL after so much URL, <laughs> like we've, what, how long? I don't think I've ever met you in real life. Dude. No, 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 no. We've been talking <laughs> ages, but I feel like I've met you, but yeah, this is yeah. the first time we're actually meeting in real yeah, life. Yeah, it's kind of weird because how did I know, how did I Did we not meet last year? Um, oh my God. No, not face to face. Because the pandemic, yeah. Dude, this entire time, I, I actually, when I was walking out my house this morning, I was like, the first time meeting Layla. Am I sure I haven't met Lisa before? But I haven't. It's really funny because I felt like I had met you. Oh, I give that feeling to people. That's yeah. fine. I have the same thing. I'm like, I'm just, I swear I've met you. But that's <laughs> because we've offloaded on each other. <laughs> you know all my drama. But... Yeah, I know all your drama. All your <laughs> drama. And it's not going to be on this podcast. I've signed like a mental NDA inquiry about it. It just the that, next podcast. Yeah, I know. I mean, <laughs> speaking of being vocal and getting vocal, um, episode, I've totally forgotten the name, number of this, number of episodes I've actually recorded now. So episode number, insert number here, is called Brown Girls Don't Speak Out. So that's what we're talking about today. So Lisa, Layla, I've like, I've got like bios written about you guys, but I think it's just better rather than me talking about you guys that you actually introduce yourselves. I actually hate introducing myself, but um, my name's Lisa Bacon. I am a councillor councillor in Westminster City Council. <laughs> I represent the residents of Pimlico. <laughs> yeah. Anything I'm, else? Um, what, yours, what your hobbies? What was that? What my hobbies? What are? your hobbies? <laughs> My hobbies are having a go at the Tories. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm looking for. Layla? Uh, yeah, I'm Layla Mahmood. I'm a journalist. Um, I write mainly investigative pieces for the BBC at the moment about Somali affairs, but I'm also, yes, yeah, just started working for a film production company. And yeah, just do writing and journalism. Oh, well, I mean, you say just, but I feel like writing and journalism, I mean, number one, right, it's so difficult to get into as a, as a, I guess like a minority creative anyway. Yeah. Um, sure. You worked at the BBC. Don't undersell it. You've, <laughs> you've done some. You've done some good things. I mean, I'm sure you'll get you. that. But, and then um, obviously Lisa as well. Like you said, you know, you you won um, the by election for Churchill Ward last year, right? Yeah. And that was a 324 majority. Yeah. So we go. So I won in a marginal seat with an 11% majority um, swing to Labour. Mm. So um, amazing! I did a bit of research a couple of weeks ago, and I realised that I got the highest vote across party since 2014. So I'm quite proud of that. No, <laughs> you did well. You've been doing well. But so, Lila, you're you're a journalist, um, and Lisa, you've found yourself in politics now, and there's no way we're going to let you leave. <laughs> but I guess what that means is you guys are not only doing things that. Um, you're doing, you're not only partaking in professions that are difficult to see, well, difficult to see people of color in and women of color as well, but also your day to day consists of activities that are unnatural to the woman of color, um, South Asian women, minority women in, of, of any identity, really. 
so <laughs> this is the, the first question. Were you, were you guys always so vocal? Or, you know, when did you discover that having a voice and being vocal was important? Um, I think, yeah, I think I've always been very vocal. I mean, probably more so when I started university, then I was like, like probably getting vocal about things. And, um, and then I started writing yeah, in university and then I realized, yeah. oh shit, like we can actually, if you see an issue, you can actually like write about it and <laughs> say something about it, like on a big public platform. And then, yeah, that was the first time I actually saw like that you could make some changes. But yeah, I think, I mean, Lisa, you know, my mom, I've been raised by like, <laughs> An insanely strong, like very vocal woman that, that has also experienced so much uh, within our own community because yeah. she's very different and such a rebel. So I always had that kind of um, person to look up to. They already like laid that path for me. Like there was no way that I was not going to be vocal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what were you doing? What were you doing before that? What were you doing before you got vocal at university? Where like? Oh my god, I was like <laughs> depressed teenager. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, just who's happy in high school? Are people happy in high school? I'm so real happy. High school. I'm happy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, high school was. Awful. Yeah. But I feel like that coincides with like social media, right? Like, sort of you getting vocal. Yeah. Um, I guess so. But I was never really like vocal on social media. Mm. Like, I always went straight through to like publications. So and like, obviously, mm-hmm. they're connected to like. Social, but I wasn't really. I don't think actually social media was huge actually when I was bloody hell. We've got through university. I feel really old right now. <laughs> yeah, like, it wasn't actually like it was Facebook, yeah. but Facebook was quite personal and it's more your friends. Yeah, but then as soon as you have Instagram, it's open to like followers and different people. When I was in uni, like Instagram wasn't. It was just starting out, but it was more people that were into like photography, yeah. which I loved. But it wasn't this thing like now. I mean, no way. This is going to sound so so lame, and I feel like so many people have said this. This is this is what they say at the beginning of every good ITV two um, pop star documentary. I I feel like I always I'm hating myself for saying this now. I felt like I was I feel like I was always different, and by I feel like I was always different. Yeah. I mean the way I went about things, the way I thought about things. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I just I don't think being see I, not being silent was like off the tape off the cards for me. Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. It just it was given. I've always been vocal, like since I was a kid. But yeah, I, I think I was always very dramatic as well. <laughs> so, for example, if I asked my mom, "Mom, can I go to Oxford Street?" and she said no, I'd be like, "Oh my god, I'm so afraid. <laughs> I can't even go to Oxford Street." So, <laughs> yeah, me. Talk about that expression, like, <laughs> But for me, it was like. I've always been that strong person, yeah. always been vocal. Yeah. And I felt like, like you said, there was no other choice. So, you know, yeah. if there was something you were unhappy about, you had to say something about it. Yeah. And what I couldn't understand is I never saw myself as someone that was different from others. But I realized that a lot of other girls saw that I was different. That's what I couldn't understand. Mm. I was like, what do you mean I'm different? Mm. I'm just speaking my mind. And so should you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I always grew up. I I felt as yeah. I like which girls that you were different? My peers. There she is. Doing the job. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you've done it. You've so done going into the journal. <laughs> I literally do that with my friends. They're like, "Can you stop interviewing me? No, we're just trying to have a drink right now." <laughs> it's great to hear that. What it means is that I can take a seat back. You could do the interview. <laughs> what girls? Honestly, it was usually my peers and usually you know girls from the community. From our community. Oh, but yeah, yeah. which color? Yeah, yeah, from the South Asian community that usually thought, "Oh, she's different." 
And I guess growing up, they always otherized me, but I never saw myself as different. Yeah. I was like, well, this is who I am. And But that's how you become different when the society around you decides that you do yeah, it, right? It's true. And I feel like there's a big, I think it's actually really interesting, your, the comparison between how you thought fit, how you thought you fit into that lifestyle and how others thought you didn't fit into that lifestyle. It's interesting because I feel like sometimes people, you can, you can grow to be this way, but I feel like some people innately, they have it in them that actually being vocal is a natural part of my identity and not just my identity as an individual, my identity as a human, like mm. we are in general, we should be being vocal. Whereas some people, you can preempt what their reactions are going to be to the way that you are. You can't be silenced because they are more driven by community. Do you see what yeah. I mean? So there's like a, there's a big difference. Whereas you're, you're still obviously a part of your community, but whereas you are self-driven and humanely driven, they are more community and culturally driven in a way. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. Which is also like a problem, like in some ways, because then you constantly have the burden of like trying to appease your community, which has very strict rules, yeah. especially because we're like a minority abroad. I think like when you're a minority, not in your actual diaspora country. Kids. Yeah, like diaspora kids. Yeah, it's like everything is all of a sudden way more extreme and like this. You have to, like, I feel I, like, you know what I mean? Like, because you have to really retain this identity. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Individually, but our communities. <laughs> and they're worried about losing that. So I think yeah. it become more extreme. And then, then there's so much pressure. And um, it's hard, I think, when then you're born. Were you born I in I was born in England, yeah. yeah. But and I think we always face different layers of discrimination. So we have this internal like fight within right. our community. We are always kind of looking at us for being different, for standing, you know, for kind of like standing out. And then externally, we have this other fight. So for example, as a counsellor, I have this internal fight where, where, you know, people will look at me within the community and they'll say, oh, look at her, you know, she's going into public office. Yeah. But she's... And, and they'll pick on everything I say. Um, and if I kind of like. They'll hold you, they'll hold you to very high regard. Very you're... high standard. Yeah. So it, it's really hard because there's a part of the community that will look, look up at what you're doing and, you know, find it, find inspiration mm -hmm. in what you're doing. And then there's another part of the community that will kind of scrutinize every single thing. And if I yeah. hold a view, which is slightly different from you know, our cultural norm, then it's kind of like, oh gosh, she's lost her yeah. roots. She doesn't know who you're she just is. On a tight, you're on a tightrope, aren't you? You're just moving on a tightrope. You don't know which way you're going to fall, but people do anticipate you falling. And then externally as well, mm. like, for example, when I'm standing in council mm. and making speeches, I'm constantly being shouted down by the opposition. Um, and just my last council speech, one of the Tory councillors shouted out, oh, she's young. Oh, I, I mean, I love that yeah. patronizing. What's oh, like, age? What's he probably has like, he probably has a checklist of like <laughs> things that he doesn't like. Well, he, it was a female, yeah. she's a woman. But she it was, was, exactly. but it was a female counselor who shouted this out. And you just think, so where have been solidarity? And I've spoken about this in like episode three with my friend Mahat. We've saying that diversity movements only help white women because sexism seems to be a lot, a lot easier to identify and combat than racism which people won't touch with Baba Chapol. But yeah. I mean, you were talking about, you're obviously talking about external pressure and being judged by like an external community. Um, and within your I mean, community, yeah, yeah. kinds of struggles. Yeah. So, I mean, 
you know, we, we've talked about our own community now, but what, what makes the experience of speaking out as a brown woman slash woman of color so different to our white male counterparts? I think when a white male counterpart says something, they're taken very seriously. They are not underestimated. They use, they hide behind elaborate language. And sometimes when you sit there and you break down that language that they use, mm -hmm. you realize, well, actually, um, with all due respect, they're chatting a lot of shit. <laughs> <laughs> but when it comes to a woman of color, I can make the most logical argument and put it forward. Yeah. But it's harder for me to be heard just because I'm a woman of color. So obviously I, you know, like simple things like putting a speech together, people are shocked when they, you know, read something that I might've put together or when they see the way I deliver something. And it's like, why, why does that shock exist? But the thing is, perfect yeah. example in 2019, when I tried to stand as a parliamentary candidate in Westminster. Yeah. Oh my God. I did. Um, you know this? I thought, oh my God, there was a I thought it was more exciting moment. Yeah. So I remember um, it was a Muslim, uh, a young Muslim girl yeah. who came up to me from the community and she goes, oh my gosh, you're so brave. Cool. But why is that brave? Yeah. Why should I not go for, you know, standing as a parliament yeah. candidate just as like, it, it, it wouldn't be brave if a white female were to stand as a parliamentary candidate. No one would tend to us, oh gosh, that's so brave. So why is this idea that what I'm doing is so brave? There are so many other women out there who are standing for public office. Um, so yeah, there is that cultural. You're always underestimated, you know, you're always, and also when you get a seat at the table, people just assume you've got a seat at the table now, just be happy with what you yeah. have. Yeah, don't speak up. Um, and when I first started, I was saying this actually to a few of my friends. I was like, when I first started as a counsellor, it was, the Tory councillors were lovely to me. Okay. I, you know, they welcomed me with like, you know. Open up. Open up. Yeah. Yes. I thought you were not going to be a threat. Exactly. And the moment I started speaking up, like their attitude towards me changed straight away. No way. But it, In what way? They became a lot more harsher. So okay. they'll try and drown out my speeches with their heckling. Um, and, uh. And it's really funny because the moment they think you're, it's funny because in the beginning, they didn't assume that I'd be a threat. And the moment I started speaking up, which they never thought I would, it, I think a lot of them thought, oh, she's just the, she just fits the diversity quota. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as I got elected and I started speaking mm -hmm. up, okay, their attitudes changed towards me overnight. And it, it's really interesting to see that. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean. I think people just assume that we're just going to be there and embrace the position that we have. Yeah. And we're doing that so that we can have like a higher social stance. And they, they just assume that not only are we not threat, but the things that we're doing, we're not doing for the community. We're doing it for ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. We, sadly, I mean, you can call it herd mentality if you want, but we want changes. Well, hence why people are podcasting like this podcast, hence why people are releasing thousands of podcasts every single week. Hence why people are doing events about minority cultures. It's because we want to advance as a community and not yeah. just individually. Exactly. You just don't want to be like a puppet there just to fill up a diversity statistic yeah. and quota as well. I mean, what about you? Same question to you, Lila. Because um, I'm sure, I mean, with the BBC, you know, obviously I know <laughs> there are many white men now. No, so that's been really I mean, I feel like I've been trashing them for weeks already. <laughs> <laughs> why not just continue? Like, why not? <laughs> I feel really bad. I just hope none of my editors listen to I'm me. watching this. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I mean, of course, lots of obstacles. Um, yeah, obviously, uh, it's very, it can be very challenging, like in the BBC, because most people on the top and editors are white uh, men, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, no offense to white men out there, but I mean, <laughs> if you're dominating it, it definitely will impact how you see, you know, representation of communities and yeah. writing and, and just during the edit process. And also they all went to the same school as well. Everyone went to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, and it's fine. You can have people like that working there. But yeah, competitions. You need them. Yeah, exactly. I remember they all like everyone went to fucking Oxford. And it's like. They all went to Eastwood, didn't they? Yeah. It's like you need people with lots of different Yeah, you need variety. Right? You, need, you need true representation, right? Yeah. And, and not just from like a color perspective, an ethnic perspective, but also like a class and educational one. Sometimes people haven't had like traditional um, high level universe education, but they've just great talented journalists and have worked or they've been working as a community organizer. There's, there's so many different things that would really help them improve their work. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, often I'm constantly having to go back during the edit process and be like, no, I'm sorry, but can you like move that word? Can I please add this? Cause I don't right, want to right. seem like I'm portraying Muslims in this kind of like scary way. And they actually do edit things out sometimes where mm. I'm like, why did you edit that? Because it genuinely, like there was a one sentence as well where I was talking about Somali, but it was straight after something they were talking about, about how the community was against women or censorism in some way. And then it was like, oh, because in Somalia, the Muslim nation, da 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 da, da. Oh. And then it was all these negative things. Oh, okay. I'm like, I never wrote Muslim nation. I, I had this, I had this situation. So I was writing, I won't talk about the publication because I obviously don't want to trash them. I'm like, I'm like, I don't give a shit. Whereas I'm like, I kind of want to work for them in the future. So. Um, but I was writing, um, I was writing something about um, South Asian women speaking out, um, and I used a situation or a protest that was happening last year. Actually, you, you can go. I mean, if anyone wants to read it, you can go onto my LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about it on here. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it was about it was about like a certain occasional protest, and I used that to correctly communicate like the South Asian woman's stance in British in British South Asian society as diaspora women, like what standards are we held to? And you know, what threats do we have? And what worries do we have about speaking out? So I remember doing that article, I was really, really proud of myself because it was my first article for like a major publication. I was like, I'm so proud of written about this. I've really like stuck it to the man. Yeah. And then I get the, I read the, uh, the final draft of it that's published. And I remember when I first wrote it, I wrote it, yeah, I wrote it to be more about the women, okay, and how we are suffering. Bear in mind as well, this is a very sensitive topic to speak about, this protest, because I was honestly sat there one day thinking, I swear to God, I'm actually going to get shot for this. And so I wrote it in the most, like, cleanest way that I could, in the most respected way that I could. Next thing you know, you look at it, and they are airing out the person who's in charge of that government. <laughs> And they're airing out like how horrible a person he is. And I was like, well, number one, you've not only disrespected like the fact that I am in a very, very complicated position yeah, right now. Yeah, I have something to say about that. Yeah. But then also, number two, what they've done is sadly, and look, my editor was fantastic. I absolutely love her. But because of the publication's guidelines, I had written BAME, as in BAME communities, as minority communities and referred to BAME communities as minority communities throughout because we are not a statistic. Mm. And there are times where you can say BAME, but this was not the time. And 
all of the times that I was I had written minorities got changed to Ben, and I just remember thinking. Did they not why show? No, I, I, I asked. I asked for it to be changed back, and they were like, "Well, according to the publication handbook, when we were talking yeah, about origin cultures, it's referred to as BAME. And I just remember thinking, "No, the point of this, the point that I'm making, this isn't a real." I don't really like the term BAME. It's like the point, the point that I'm making right now is that we are already going out of our way to, I guess, be vocal. We're going against our society. Now that's dangerous. We'll talk about what the consequences of that might be later, but it is dangerous. I want people to know that because there are consequences. Mm -hmm. But when you've done that hard work and you've literally bled yourself dry for yourself to be as honest as that, only to have people policing the way that you write it and potentially making it more dangerous for you. 100%, yeah. No, they did the same. I I get the same all the time. And then, and it's also like, it's weird, yeah. It's like you don't. There, there should be experience with them. I'm sure you. Yeah, yeah. No people that you wrote. Yeah, I did with the LGBT one. Um, well, because it just relates to because basically, actually, normally there is like a safety procedure, and there are procedures that you have to do, and there's risks involved, mm. and to make sure that yeah, you, you don't get hurt. All the people that you're talking about don't get hurt. Um, but for some weird reason, in this department for that piece, they didn't have that um procedure in place. I think because it wasn't BBC African, usually BBC Africa, I think they're a little bit more in tune with like dealing with, you know, talking about communities where there's governments that censor things and it's corruption, potential sure, dangers, sure. but they just weren't, okay, fuck it, I'll just out them BBC stories. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't like, they just were really unaware of, they just was no procedure and nobody talked to me about it. They'd never thought that anything would happen. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, obviously... I got loads of death threats afterwards and it was like very crazy. My God. And it was just like, and then I had to message and I was just like, by the way, like I'm getting like all these death threats. Is there like a procedure or something I can do? Like, I think I'm going to be okay, but I'm not really sure. And like, they were like, oh, I guess, yeah, there's like this. I mean, if it, if it keeps happening, like you can contact this one wow. person, but it was really clear. No, it, it was very like, it wasn't, they weren't like taking it serious in any way and I kind of just felt oh so disposable and that so like cool. because the, and also they made it so dramatic they always change my titles I'm really shit at making titles but <laughs> they make it really clickbait and it changes sort of the angle and it, they're very like, sensationalist because they just want people they want to drive off ratings um, to be honest so, yeah. sorry I was just going to say like, no, no, go for it. I'm extremely surprised by the BBC because the BBC is supposed to be a huge reputable organisation so the fact that number one they they thought that, you know, the people that they had made to the article were okay. Yeah. There's a regulation of the media there, isn't it? I mean, everyone's everyone's going for clickbaiting things because they are in competition with each other. Now, I mean, I don't think we can necessarily blame like one publication, mm-hmm. but we can definitely hold all of them accountable for this because I'm, I'm sure this is one of the reasons why there are less people in politics and in media who are people of colour and women of colour as well. We're scared, like, yeah. I'm actually scared for you, Lisa. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm genuinely scared. I'm genuinely scared. I'm genuinely my, scared. Like, I mean, my big next question was, you weren't taken seriously, right? When you said you were getting death threats, okay? Yeah, it was kind of like, oh, sorry. If it happens again, we'll sort out. We'll have aftercare. No, of course. Not aftercare, but yeah. Also, like, but also, like, psychologically, because it was the first time I experienced yeah. that, I was completely out of my oh, depth. completely. And I was, I deleted a lot of social media. I was mm. hiding everything. Only just now, I've been using as a close friends thing on like my Instagram story. Yes, yeah. Because I'm paranoid. I don't put my location out. Yeah. Anymore. But for months, it was like, it was really intense. 
I mean, let's go into the consequences of speaking out in that case then, because um, just to, I mean, I'm pretty sure Leila has spoken to you about this, Lisa, I've spoken to you about this as well, um, both in instances where, like, for example, with me, I'm not going to lie, I'm very vocal on my Instagram stories. I know, I like, know. <laughs> And I do not give a shit. Like, many people do give a shit about what I say and they try and police me, but I, I do not give a shit. I feel like, Although I have become a little bit more, I guess, I pick my battles a little bit more as I've gotten older because I've gotten tired. Yeah, but you don't want to waste your life like this. Yeah, but then also Shout because it's genuinely, right, and you, I, I'll ask you this question after telling you the context, which I'm sure you already know about. I remember somebody saying to me when I released one or two of my articles, well, what's the worst that could happen if you talk about this stuff? And I actually remember saying, mate, I could be killed, okay? Like, and they were like, what, in prison? And I was like, have you heard what honour Yeah. Have you heard of being acid attacked on the street? Like, and people are like, you're being dramatic. No, no, um, I genuinely yeah, fear, genuine fear, genuinely fear that somebody that I know is like, I, I think of that scenario so many times in my head. It stopped me from being vocal many times where like, I'm walking down the street um, in my hometown. Somebody comes up to me and they just throw something on me and they're like, well, that's, this is for so-and-so. Yeah. I genuinely fear that. So what, like to you guys, do you share that fear? And what's the worst that could happen if women do speak out? And what has been personally your biggest fear? No, I definitely have that fear. And I think that fear was heightened recently. So I, during my by-election, it was the first time. No, actually, let's go back a bit. So Take it what, back. Yeah. Like, so many traumatic moments. <laughs> Take it right back to when I fought a housing campaign against the Duke of Westminster. So... I, in 2019, I live in uh, Belgravia, which is like one of the most expensive parts of the country. Yeah. But the second Duke of Westminster in the 1920s, out of his benevolence, <laughs> <laughs> decided, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, <laughs> decided to build um, housing, council housing for low income families. Okay. Um, so I, my family moved there in the 80s and we've been, we've been living there since. But then um, the Duke of Westminster's Grosvenor Group decided they wanted to do a redevelopment there in 2019. Yeah. So we started this campaign and I never realised that the campaign would like get national media attention, yeah. but it did. So I found myself um, on the front of newspapers and oh it was the media. Yeah, oh I was like so proud of doing you. TV um, interviews and stuff. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. It was so exciting. Yeah. Um, and like the overwhelming majority of people supported me right, right. because I was fighting for residence. But there were that very small minority of like, you know, one particular journalist, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to give him <laughs> airtime, but one particular journalist thought it would be really good to try and um, kind of delegitimize my campaign. And he was always like, yeah, well, Lisa Bacon, it's just her campaign and no one's behind her. Um, but that's when, yeah, yeah, yeah. like when I, when I started receiving those kind of things and then I started receiving like really horrible tweets on, um, on social media and it was never about my campaign. It was never about the fact that I'm fighting for residents. It was always about, you know, so at that time I was wearing a hijab. Um, so it was always about, oh, the girl on that, um, on the front page as a terrorist. Oh my and, god. And that was my first experience of this. I was like, oh my god, this is horrible. So and then it came to my by-election and I started getting these troll accounts. None of my other colleagues in the Labour group have ever had troll accounts. Mm. Have ever had anyone, you know, threaten them on Twitter or saying horrible things about them on Twitter. 
But for some reason, <laughs> I seem to get all of these. I wonder what that reason is. Huh? Yeah, all of these accounts that come up every now and then just before an election. I've got another account that's just come up just two months away from a local yeah. election. Yeah. Who's saying things about, oh, so this one particular account took pictures of me at a Palestinian demonstration mm-hmm. and then wrote, picture of Councillor Begum at a Palestinian demonstration have been taken off her Twitter account. Or glad that she's now a councillor for the many, not the few. Oh, rubbish. It doesn't make sense. And I thought to myself, first of all, I never removed any of my pictures, you know, of me at Palestinian demonstration. I never yeah. would. I'm very proud. Yeah, what do you yeah. have about? <laughs> right. And on top of that, um, just because I support Palestine, it doesn't mean that I am a councillor for the few and not the many. Right. Like, holding public office means that I have to represent all people coming from all backgrounds. And, you know, it doesn't matter what your sexuality is, what your religion is, what your um, my, what your ethnic minority is. Yeah. Like, I have to stand up. And do you know what's funny? I'm sorry, but it's interesting how, I mean, obviously we've got the Russo-Ukrainian war is obviously going on right now. And it's interesting. I mean, we won't go off on a tangent now because I know I'm fired up and I probably will. So let's bring it back. But it's interesting it. how it's 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 right and it's good to to support Ukrainians and condemn Russia. But when you're supporting Palestine, you're being told that you're for the few and not the many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, you know, we, you should be against war in general anyway. But exactly. you know, I mean, well, was there a point where you were like, obviously that's scary, right? Like you're 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 in public office, which means for a lot of people who are scrutinizing you. Mm. Were you ever scared that, like, oh, have you ever thought about, like, what's the worst that could happen? I guess. I've always thought about what's the worst that could happen um, because, and, and I just think, I mean, I've been in public office for 10 months now. And in right. those 10 months, not only have I had that kind of um, reception on social media, but I've also, I also had a situation where I had someone that found out where I lived and then turned no, up to myself to want to speak to me. And before that they had been emailing me about the most ridiculous conspiracy theory <laughs> and I just so thought terrifying. I'll just ignore it I did not think that they would turn up to my doorstep and knock on the door and I, I, I didn't like I wasn't at home so my family had to deal with that oh my god and I just thought oh my god I can't believe I'm putting my family at risk and I have like you know I live with my family my nieces my nephews mm-hmm. so it is something that's scary and I think holding public office you have to be so careful because we do a lot of, um, you know, our job is to engage with the public. So, so yeah, I had um, someone that turned up to my house. So they had been following everything that I've been doing on social media. They'd written, read articles about me and then they turned up to my house and knocked on the door and they would not leave until they got to speak to me. Why? And it was, what was it about? Was it about council's matter? Or? I, I think this person had um, a history of mental health issues. Okay, right. Um, and and they just started harassing me. That's so terrible. And first of all, it started off with emails about, you know, obviously conspiracy and people are working against you. And I thought, oh, these are just, you know, like random emails, which I'll yeah, okay. ignore. Right, sure. And, and I did never expected that they'd turn up to my house. Mm. But then two weeks ago, when I was door knocking in the evening, and it was it's quite dark now anyway. So I was door knocking, knocked on this one gentleman's door, and he opened the door with a knife in his hand. <laughs> And he started shaking his Oh my leg. God, this is so scary. It's like, what's nightmare? Like, he was like, this listen, yeah, don't ever knock on this door again. And I, I always have a delayed reaction to trauma. So I literally went, okay, have a nice evening. And I walked up <laughs> and I told my colleague, I was like, 
Um, Jason, someone just uh, like opened the door and he had a knife in his hand. And he was like, okay, you need to call the police. You need to let the Safer Neighbourhoods team know. So I went through the whole process of letting the Safer Neighbourhoods team know, giving them a statement, etc. And, you know, they did what they had to do. But it was only afterwards I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I can't believe you that. Yeah. I, feel, I mean, sometimes it sounds really, I don't know, maybe I'm making um, the wrong observation, but sometimes I do feel like if it wasn't for your identity, you wouldn't be having those those situations to deal with. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because And that's not to say that people who don't have your identity don't deal with situations like that. I feel like you get it more. I feel like I do get it more. And I think it's evident just when I look at my colleagues. In the, chilled out. in the 10 months that I've been a counsellor, I've yeah. had to deal with more of this than any of my other colleagues. Sure. So I'm just sitting there looking at them thinking, well, how come you guys don't get the same as I do? It's all good for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's, I, I don't think some people realise the privilege that they hold. Yeah, yeah. And they don't realise how easy it is for them to, you know, like speak up and be vocal because yeah. they don't have... They don't have that worry of death threats yeah. or, you know, being heckled in council or not being, you know, heard. They, you know, when I look at a lot of my white male counterparts, I literally look at them and I just think, wow, you mm. really just have to stand up and deliver. Mm. And that's all you have to worry about. Whereas I have to stand up, deliver, and then think about the consequences. Right. And, you know, yeah. Oh my God. That means so mentally, it's so exhausting as well, mentally. Because yeah, you're constantly having to worry about so many different groups of people. You have to do with people in your community and like, it's just everything. And then with the internet, like, it's just never ending. Like, it's just yeah. really exhausting. I mean, it's not just about uh, reactions either. It's also about like, when you post organic things. So for example, Leila, I'm looking at you like, I'm John Um I know that you've had, like you said, you had like a couple of tricky stories that you've dealt with. Um, I think there was one notable one that we were talking about a few months ago. Basically, yeah, she's very like vo vocal, big feminist in the community. Right. And she does amazing, amazing things. And she's not afraid. She's completely fearless. Yeah. Very big um, following online. But lots of people hate her and trying to kill her as well. And then somehow her, her home address um, was exposed. She lived in Sweden, then she moved to England. Um, She's Somali originally. And uh, so then she had to, she's now she's living in a hidden location. Oh, and actually that's where we had, to, we did some filming afterwards because um, BBC Arabic, they wanted to do like a video feature. After yeah. The article came out and then, yeah, we had, there was this whole thing where we're like, I have to make sure we're filming and nothing's obvious of like where we are so yeah. not to find out. Yeah. And even I was scared of emails being leaked, um, but it was fine. Like they were on top of it. They were actually yeah. much better. And there was actually then a whole risk department yeah. that was liaising and going over every single step which I never had before. Um, so, yeah. As Lisa said, like, I feel like some people and some identities in particular, they really do take their freedom and their freedom of speech. Um, I guess that they take advantage of it. Not just take advantage, but they take, take it, it for granted. Like, yeah. yeah, take it for granted. I was just going to say, yeah, they take it for granted and I don't think they realise the obstacles that we face. Yeah. Because, but I, you know what? It, oh, it's like, you can never win. There's like a catch-22. It's like, yeah, I've got this position and I want to speak out for residents and I want to speak out for communities yeah. and support them. But I think people that hold, the community that hold that privilege, they need to be more supportive mm. of people like me who are trying to make change.
But also there needs to be like an infrastructure as well within different institutions. So within like politics and then within journalism where there are really proper procedures to explore risks and safety and also make sure that we are safe. Yeah. And not just used like, you know, to show some diversity statistic or just for some sensation story that's going to get loads of like views. Like there has to be more of that. But I think that's because maybe we need to start talking more about these issues, which people are a little bit more now. Uh, but then the first the first step to all of these institutions having like risk assessments and things like that is being heard and being taken seriously mm. and being taken at face value. So if I say that something's really dangerous and if you don't change that word or the, or the way you phrase that, then that's yeah. going to cause a lot of potential issues for me down the line. And somebody says, well, the fact of the matter is it's procedure. That means you're not being taken seriously. It means you're yeah. sort of always being gaslit. 100%. Yeah. 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 Just, but then you speak because there's not, there's still not that many diverse people yeah. on these big corporations. So there's still, if there were more, probably this issue would have come up a lot more often and there would have been like a body instituted that would really deal with it. But because actually we're still a minority actually. Big time. I also have to say, and I'm actually quite surprised about this. So after the uh, murder of David, um, uh, the MP David Amiss, mm, yeah. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sony. But, you know, the fact that people in Britain are being murdered for their political views is something that's very scary. Yeah. yeah. And we assumed that there'd be a lot more protection for MPs and local councillors after that. But, I mean, from my experience in the council that I stand in as a councillor, I don't feel protected yeah. and I don't feel like enough support has been given to councillors. Um, so we, we have such a long way to go. Um, and, but I, I think it's scary that the way we're going in this country is that you have to be careful about how you articulate yourself mm. because potentially someone could come out and decide, you know what, I'm going to like harm this person because of a view they have. Like, look at Joe Cox. I know. Yeah. I was thinking about that. I also think about her. I think about you. And I'm like, I don't want anything to happen to the user. Because I'm not saying that. I never had that fear until like the last 10 months where um, I've been welcomed with a I knife at the be... door. <laughs> but that was a random crazy pass. Um, I'm I think else all of gone. those were just random, you know. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about the person who found you, but you were just door knocking with that guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, there definitely has to be more um, protections in place for people in public office. Mm. But then quickly going back to the situation you had with the BBC um I am su- surprised that there was no support afterwards I no, they're just like thanks for doing that <laughs> bye <laughs> we're next pitch but, I find that, but that's I also think. like that's also another issue though because I'm a freelancer like I think there is maybe difference mm. maybe if you're not a freelancer yeah, I protected. Think, I think I have a huge gripe with the BBC. I keep bringing it up. It's okay. Everyone likes. I, I, no, I have a huge <laughs> talking gripe. Talking about it one week I have a huge gripe with them because they confused me with Apsana Bezum. In oh, October. yeah, that was. <laughs> in October 2021, I spoke at Laser's stores. They still do. Do you go on Google? Like, it's always you. No, I'm next to each other. No, what I mean is, like, stop because I'm in shock, not stop. Don't literally stop me. No, basically. um in November 2019, I made a speech at Labour's Race and Faith Manifesto. Yeah, and uh, I saw that. It was a good and, speech. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and Absana Bagan was there. Um, and she, at that time, she was a candidate. We were the only two staff-wearing females um, 
at the uh, oh, no. at the launch. And then in October 2021, I got alerted by a friend. She was like, oh, my God, BBC have just put images of you. And they're talking about housing fraud. Oh, um, God, I so, saw that. It was on the TV. Yeah, so I quickly went on to BBC iPlayer. Before I even went on to BBC iPlayer, um, a journalist um, had put it on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it had already gained traction. And I just see myself that the journalist is clearly saying, Absana Baker. <laughs> And talking about allegations of housing fraud, and they've just <laughs> images of me at, at the BB at, at the Labour, you know. I'm sorry, it's not funny with this. No, but what got a laugh? Let's see over the video. Yeah, just, what was it's the, so fucking mad? But the thing is, this is about housing fraud, <laughs> and I am a housing campaigner. <laughs> so first of all, it brings me to disrepute, yeah. right? Uh, but most importantly, how could you get two of these brown women? Yeah, uh, like you know, how could you mistake them? Mm. And if you, oh God, he looks so know, different. Like, so different. That's just because you both have a scarf and you have the same sound. Yeah, for sure. But it reinforces like, the so ridiculous. Yeah, that, you know, all, all graphic will look the same. Yeah, completely. And I guess that sort of shoots, oh well, we shoot ourselves in the foot by being present when those conversations are being had. And the reason why I say it, like we're, like we're the people who aren't victims, we're more likely to do it is because that's the way we're framed. We just like we just happen to be there, like one place, one time. But then people are like, "Oh no, I got you mixed up because um because of this and that." And I'm like, "It's because you're racist. Because you're, you're lazy. lazy. Why don't you just look at my face properly?" And then that lazy like... works against us when we're trying to be vocal, right? It really does harm us. Um, I mean, one of the questions I wanted to ask as well is like, this comes into it. Why is it difficult for us to have a say, especially when we're living in Britain? with a white majority, but then also I want us to look at this question from the fact that we have a community and what that community is comprised of and the stuff that it, like the values that it relies on to keep it going. So in, in general, why would you say women of color find it hard to have a say? Or why is it difficult for us to have a say? I mean, because well, generally, if you just think about women, women, yeah. it's hard for women to say anything because we just have so much uh, drawback from society. If you say anything that goes against then all the people still expect women to just shut up and be quiet. Yeah. In fact, I, I, I'm feeling well. weird having this conversation in like a co-working space. So you like... I feel very weird right now. I wish I was talking about like sales or something. Maybe then I'd be able to be like louder and more unapologetic. We'd still be loud racism. Literally, we're the only people of color here right now. You know what though? In, really in politics, you know, I don't blame women of colour not wanting to hold public office. Yeah. I've only been in my position 10 months and sometimes I think, oh my God, do I want to keep yeah. doing this? Mm-hmm. And, but sometimes you need to look at the bigger picture and think, well, no, but do you know what? I need to drive mm-hmm. ahead because I want to make change and I want to make things better for people. And I don't, and when I say I want to make things better for people, I don't just mean the South Asian community. Yeah. I mean the working class community. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people from low income families. I, you know, I don't, I think we've got so many obstacles mm. in front of us, but we need to like look at the bigger picture yeah, and carry make, on. Know, like, what, the, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I wanted to like put yeah. on because obviously we're talking about the struggles and how difficult it is, but I think it's also really important to, and now I kind of feel like I'm getting that level, just like the older I get, and I'm sure you're having that as well, like where you are just, there's a point where you feel so stressed and overwhelmed and like mm. there's so many barriers and you're like I just can't can I do this do I want to live this life like of being constantly in fear and there's a point where you're just like fuck it 
<laughs> just literally like, you know what, fuck it. And it's so, cause it's so overwhelming. And then, but the desire to want to change things and to say things is more stronger than the fear. Mm. So then you're just like, I, you just, I just now don't even think, of course, I'm a little bit like careful with something, yeah. but I just don't care anymore. Yeah. I just live my life happy and just say what I want because. And where's the, where, where does that drive come from? Like what, what gives you the drive to sort of be like that? I just think like, because I, yeah, I also genuinely want to see some like change in the world yeah. and like within my community. You know where that drive comes from? For me, especially. Yeah. So when I joined the Labour Party, I joined the Labour Party in 2015 and I never really got involved because mm. I didn't know how to get involved. Yeah. And it's very hard to make politics accessible to people. Oh, yeah. Um, and for a woman of colour like me, politics was never accessible. How was I? I? I didn't know one all members meeting was, you know. But I remember it was through my older brother who was like, who was already a councillor. He said, oh, why don't you come along to the all members meeting? And I was like, okay, fine. And then I was asked, would you like to go to a position within the executive committee? And, and oh, so I did. I met you. And that's how I met. That's how I met Layla. So she was the BAME officer and I became the grading officer. And then we just kind of like went from there. But the moment I realised because a fight that I can never give up on was when I started my campaign against the Duke of Westminster. Mm. But that's when I realised, like, when it comes to people of colour and when it comes to working class people, we are, we have a whole load of socioeconomic factors mm. that drag us down, whether it's health inequalities, housing inequality, inequalities in employment, that, you know, like, there's so many disparities. Mm. Um, and that's when I realized, and, and, and when I started the housing campaign, I remember everyone was like, Lisa, you're being stupid. You're never going to get anywhere. This is the Duke of Westminster. He owns more land than the Queen. He's got like 13 billion, 13 billion dollars is his net worth or whatever, Judge Shai. When I first started this campaign against him in 2019, he had a net worth of 9 billion. So, what, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and you think about it and you're like, it's young as well. How? Yeah, he's the youngest. He, well, in 2019, he was the youngest under 30 year old in the country. Yes. yes. Yeah. But when I started this campaign, I was like, I, I can't ever stop because Westminster in particular is a constituency that has very high levels of wealth. So you've got like extreme wealth and then, you know, we've got a lot of, lots of Russian oligarchs. But I know, they love also, it there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we also have extreme poverty as well, which is why they, they've termed the constituency um, a tale of two cities. Yeah. And it really is a tale of two cities. Because when I go to somewhere like the Churchill Gardens estate, which is a famous um, estate that was built uh, in the... I've forgotten the year, uh, the years, but it was during the Abercrombie project. So if anyone knows which year the Abercrombie project started, yeah, tweet that, yeah tweet I will. But those homes were created for low-income families, for working-class families. But when you go to the Church of Guns Estate and then you go and then you leave the Church of Guns Estate and you go on the Grove Road, you've got Grade Two listed buildings yeah. with you know like very wealthy families living there. That is, and and you know the patch that I represent. Has. Dark contrast, yeah, in like exactly. within like what, two streets down. Yeah. So, it's, for yeah. example, if Belgravia, if Belgravia, they'll email me and say something like, "Oh, we need better paving," right? Whereas in Pimlico, I'll get emails from people saying, 
my ceiling's just fallen off. Okay. I have mold on my walls. Um, you know, I've just been moved out of Westminster. I've been put into the privately rented sector. I'm applying for housing benefit and universal credit. Yeah. But I'm in rent arrears now because I have to wait six weeks until I get those benefits. It's such a stark difference, which is why, and that, I think it was in 2019 when I started that housing campaign. I was like, I can't stop. I mm -hmm. need to carry on. Yeah. Um, and that's what's kept me going. But going back to something that Leila said earlier, she was saying, um, I pick my argument, I pick, pick my battles now. So I learned that very quickly. I was like, I don't have the energy for all of this. Yeah. I have to pick my battles. So for example, um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a particular, there was a particular magazine that had all the, um, our local MPs details and all the local councillors details. So it covered Knightsbridge and Belgrade, Yard, Pimlico North, and then Churchill Ward, which is the ward that I stand for. And it had both my male colleagues' details down, but they had missed out my details. Um, and I remember all of my colleagues were like, oh my God, this is awful. And it is awful. And we must make a formal complaint and everything. But you know, I really don't have the energy for this. No. So what I did was drop the person a nice email saying, hi there, you've forgotten about my, um, you know, contact details. And what I got back was, yeah, we rely on counsellors to give us information. But when I had spoken to my colleague, he was like, no, I've never sent them my information. They've usually just got it online and just stuck it onto, that you know, applications. Yeah, exactly. That is ridiculous. Batchiness and politics is I'm, unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. And local politics. What I did instead of making a formal complaint, because I was like, I really can't do this. Very <laughs> British making a formal complaint. <laughs> well, my ways by saying, would you like to meet for a coffee? Because I always think, well, you know what? There's no harm in them in me meeting them, having yeah. a chat with them. Yeah. It might change their perception of me. It might not. But at least I've tried so instead of me going the whole, you know, defensive route, yeah. being like, I'm going to make a formal complaint. I was like, would you like to meet for a coffee? Mm -hmm. It's actually quite nice. And <laughs> I got an email back saying, yes, here's my mobile number. Let me free. Nice. And I was like, okay, that's progress. Maybe next time you'll get front page bread. Yeah. To <laughs> <laughs> um, my second last question, actually, you're great. You've been serving me some really good um, prompts for all of the questions that I've got down here. So well done to you. Well done to you. Um, do you feel, I mean, obviously like, it's been a long while since we all started speaking out, um, since we all started communicating the issues that we had, since we all started like standing up for ourselves in our communities. Do you feel pressure to be vocal more than most might feel who have obviously different identities because of the identities that you have as women of color? I definitely feel the pressure. Yeah. And I think I, I feel the pressure so much more because as much as we, we get, you know, like, I say otherizing in our own communities because we stand up and we're vocal. Yep. There's also a large majority of people that look at us and feel like, oh, there's some hope that she'll speak up for us. Mm. So I feel that extra pressure to keep talking about marginalized communities on what they go through and how we can make things better for them and what the solutions are. And yeah, it does. It, it puts immense pressure on me because when I'm door knocking and I'm speaking to people and, you know, when I'm speaking to young people, when I'm speaking to minority and they talk to me about their problems and then they look at me as a ray of hope. I'm like, oh my God, I really, really need to make this, you know, I, I really totally. need to ensure that I can make change for them. Yeah. And not only that, I also want to be able to make, like when I first started in politics, if it hadn't been for my um, older brother saying, oh, come along to this meeting. I would never have got involved. 
but I want to make things accessible for younger people as well. Like at the end of the day, decisions are being made for our community without us being part of that decision-making process, Yeah, which is why when I speak to young people, I'm always like, come to full council, come to this meeting with me, come to that meeting. And I try and break things down for people as much as possible yep. so that it's not a daunting experience. Um, and I will continue to do that. And I really hope if by the end of my term as a councillor, whenever I decide to stand down. And stand it, up for MP and yeah. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but if by the end of it, I can turn around and say, you know what, I've inspired people to go into local politics or I've inspired people to start campaigning and making change then I'll feel like, okay, job well done, Deepa. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Nina? Do you feel no, that pressure? Oh my God, 100%. Because, yeah, exactly what Lisa said. I experience it a lot because people yeah. reach out. To, I, people constantly message me, send mm-hmm. emails or call my mom or other family members. And they're like, oh my God, like this has happened to me. This mm-hmm. person's stuck in this country. Like they can't get their visa. Like they're experiencing racism from authorities. Like, this is what's happening in the community. Can you write something about it? And like everyone is like constantly... Because I think when you're, because I guess now we are a privileged, we're actually privileged. Privileged yeah. <laughs> in a weird way to say that, but like we are in privileged positions. Um, and we do like have these like uh, avenues to talk about big issues on a large scale that will actually potentially make a difference. So we, we actually do have that kind of power. So I think a lot of people, yeah, you feel pressure to, and sometimes you can't, you know, you can't write, you can't do every issue. Or no, you can't. There's, comp- there's things going on or you're just not going to be able to do everything. So you, yeah, I feel, I do feel guilty, like quite a lot. Like, so I'm like, shit, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working on all this stuff. I can't do yeah. all these it's, things for it's you. It's interesting. Like we, there's so much stress on us to sort of be present. I think sometimes people forget that like, okay, so we are, we are vocal and we are key members of our society. We are essentially spokespeople for our societies, but that does mean we are still human. Um, yeah. and it, it generally, like it, it does get stressful. We burn out, we burn out. But do you know, it, do you think that's also because there just isn't enough? Like. Because there isn't that many. No, I would say it's the, it's the pressure of that we are the minority and not just the minority as in we identify as minority because of the colour of our skin, because we're the minority, because we're spokespeople for a minority, right? I get, And then also alongside that, alongside the point that you just made about there being less of us, I think definitely with the jungles it feels that way or about Somali yeah. specifically but then also it's like this idea that you you can't stop like you can't stop it doesn't matter, matter how many people there are you can't stop yeah you've got to keep going because if 100%. you don't like there's this fear like it doesn't matter how many brown people there are in media or politics there is always that fear that if I don't report it then they might do it wrong and that's yeah, the that's it's better that we control our narratives yeah. than yeah, exactly. And we prefer doing it individually. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I can't sit back, even if there's like another Indian woman who's writing about a story, I can't sit back and think she's going to cover it right. But then that fear stems from the fact that there have been so many different times that we've been misrepresented in the media, be that print, be that in news, um, uh, like the 6pm or whatever. Yeah. And that, I feel like that's where the bridge comes from. We've always had a secondhand narrative yes. of our community. Yes. And I think in recent years, we're kind of taking that narrative back and saying, well, yeah. no, it's not like that. You know what? I'll give you a really small example. And this is like the tiniest example, but I remember growing up, right? And you know, like 
if I was watching BBC or Channel 4 or whatever, and they were reporting on something like Asian cooking, okay. and you'd always hear them say things like Pakistan yeah. and, um, uh, you know, Chapati. Yeah. yeah and, and pronouncing things in the most unglified way. And now sometimes when I watch reporters and they're like, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. Honestly, my heart skips a beat every time I see somebody who's like brown or has like a Gujarati name. I'm like, yes, that's fantastic. But sometimes as well as that, like, I don't know, sometimes I feel pressure that it's very easy to, to get in a, become in a box uh, when you're a person of color. Like, yeah. About, especially from a writer perspective, about the kind of content that you make. It's so cool. true then they just only want you to write about Somali stuff or things like your genius. And it's like, sometimes I'm like, you know what? I just want to write about music. I just want to do things that are like happy. God, and It'd be such like a breath of fresh air to be told, like write about like the, the milkman. Who's been yeah. Or something I, like that. I'm definitely going to start doing that. I'm writing about the milkman. I, I got some of my own Maybe versions of those stories. Yeah. And like, I think also there's another, I think there is a responsibility. We should also be conscious that to not allow ourselves to be boxed into only talking about suffering or just the issues of, marginalized community yes. obviously important and good but we we can also just write about things that are just you know completely separate from that because yes. that we're not completely defined as well and also by like do, exactly do, do you yeah i'm just for like more than eight hours oh my God, i have so much anxiety and i'm like why am i writing about these things about writers and it's really interesting it's really interesting you mentioned that because i remember of when I started my housing campaign and stuff, and all of a sudden people started seeing this brown girl in Westminster in the local papers, and all my neighbours, everyone around the area, they were just like, it was as though they were surprised that I had, that I was worried about the same things they were. Yeah. And I think, so... Yeah, we're not that different. Yeah, exactly. It's like, when you look at... Like aliens. When you look at, like, working-class families, for example, whether you're a white working-class family or you're an Asian working-class family, we all have the same problems. We all suffer from housing deprivation or financial insecurity. Uh, I think people don't realise that. Um, So when I started this housing campaign, it brought the whole community together. It didn't matter where you were from. It just brought the whole community together. And... I, I don't know how to articulate this. I'm just going to say it. Yes, I, I think a lot of like residents in Westminster, a lot of white residents in Westminster kind of looked at me like, oh my God, wow, look at this. The environment we're living with. Yeah, it was kind of like, wow, look at this brown girl and she's fighting for all our rights. And I think, oh my God, you can be the brown savior. <laughs> no, but I think it made people, it, it made me realize, okay, so. A lot of them have been used to seeing brown girls who keep talking about race and it's like phobia yeah. and stuff like that. Whereas they haven't come across a brown girl who is a housing campaigner and they found that really shocking. Um, so yeah, there is that need to kind of not box ourselves yeah. right. and not allow ourselves to Absolutely. be boxed. Because it means, it means that you're not just, you're not just standing up for the rights of your own community, but you can you can also stand up for other people's rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And that's, that, you know, we, we can we can help. We don't have to be seen as a hindrance. We can be a help to all people. Yeah. I think that's what's really, really important. And in fact, I would like to think that as women of colour, we have a lot more fire in our bellies because oh, yeah. there have been so many times that we've been stopped from speaking Latin so naturally that 
it sort of triggers something in us where we're like, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so my last question is, um, so I know it's really, really difficult for us and we really do get it on all ends. Um, how can we, how can we, what practical steps can we make to make it easier for women in our community, i.e. women of colour, to be more vocal? First of all, lead by example. Secondly, I, I think people get really scared about how they can get started or what they can do. I, I would literally, when I speak to people of colour or when I speak to people who, you know, you see women in your community that have leadership skills. Sure. When I look at my mum, for example, I'm like, gosh, I got my, you know, all that, you know, activism mm. that I do every single day. You know, my, the fact that I care about social justice. I get that from my mom. I get that from my dad. You know, I get it from them. I had some strong people in my life who influenced me. And I think sometimes when you see people within the community who have the most amazing leadership skills, but they don't know how to get started. Yeah. I will. And I'm more than happy to do this. Like, just take them by the hand. Be like, just come shadow me or actually, you know what? No, no, no. I was once advised and I still have to do this, but I've told other people to do it as well. I've always been told shadow a white mediocre man for one day <laughs> and that, I, yes that's literally no, what i'm trying to do somebody yeah. told me this my friend my friend's sister actually said to me when i was having it when i was too scared to be pitching for um for publications she was like mate mancy have the confidence gather the confidence of a white mediocre man yeah because yeah. if, if they can do it and you can do it better. Exactly. All you need is that little bit of a push. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? When you see people, I, I have to say, sometimes I sit there. I, I sit there in meetings and I watch like white media man, men speak, use elaborate language yeah. speaking about a load of shit. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, <laughs> that is not what the resident really needs to hear. But, but they get away with it. Yeah. I want to say, yeah, like... Oh my God, if you're like a white man, you can literally get away with everything. Like yeah. if we say one thing that's slightly off, like everyone just goes completely insane. Like, yeah. like we're just judged by yeah. like a much higher standard. So this is a really yeah. weird analogy, but I remember once I went, no, my first ever holiday to a Muslim country, it was in yeah. Morocco, right? And obviously I'm Muslim. So <laughs> I was like being treated as an equal and everything was so easy for me. And I was like, shit, this is what it feels like to be white, you know? Oh my God. <laughs> this is how I'm going to be when I finally get to Africa. Like, I feel like this is going to be very weird. Like, everyone is like me. And oh my God. It's just like, I'm is like, that how you feel? I mean, I've had, I've had a different, I've had a semi different experience. We'll discuss this in like another, yeah. I think I need another episode to get into like the intricacies of being like a diaspora kid and like not quite belonging oh, to both no. countries. Yeah, no, 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 no. I get what well. you mean because when I go to Bangladesh, it's all well, like, well. she's the girl from yeah, she's not, uh, no. she can't and then, and then you come here and they're like, you're the foreigner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You came from, no. like, where do I belong? <laughs> I, I get that. I yeah. absolutely get that. Yeah. But the first time I went to, and I don't think I'd feel like this if I went to Bangladesh. Sure. But when I went to Morocco, I remember it was like, oh, I need to, oh, it's really easy. Yeah. I, just, I can just go to that. Like, I don't need to think about the halal restaurant. I can just go to it any restaurant, it, right? It's just, yeah. it's just exactly. And, and then the way people treat you as well. And I was just like, oh my God, this is what it feels like to be treated like, you know, like, this is how it feels <laughs> like. like, 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 like. And that's the hurdle. That's the yeah. thing you identity, right? Yeah. 
But following up from Lisa's point, um, I think it's really important to have like mentors, uh, like to, to be mentors and to constantly, yeah, just be open for other people from the community if they want to, yeah, shadow you or learn and give advice and, yeah, maybe just create like networks okay, yeah. of different like uh, marginalized people that want to like learn skills. And I think the best thing is really just to share your skills and your knowledge and, yeah, lead by example. And also, you know, anyone that's listening to this podcast that's a woman of colour in a place of authority or, you know, someone that holds public office, stop being a gatekeeper. <laughs> like, I hate that. <laughs> there's plenty yeah, of space. That. Yeah, there's plenty of space for all of yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we need to get rid of this, like, individualistic mentality yeah. and think, like, yeah, there's only one of us, like, there's no space for anyone yeah. else. And just, like, everyone wants you to support and collaborate Completely. and help each other. Exactly. Yeah, and this, oh God, I find this really annoying when people are like, the first British Asian to do this or the first British black yeah. no, to do this. I'm like, like don't be the first. <laughs> there is room for a second. Yeah, exactly. And a fourth. <laughs> yeah. And actually, you're probably not the first. If you, you know, like, I, I remember, I think it wasn't that long ago where Stormzy, oh, by the way, I really like Stormzy, but Stormzy, <laughs> said, Stormzy said he was the first black artist in Glastonbury. And then there was yeah. another artist. I've forgotten the name of the first. Uh, there was another artist. Did they do Google? Yeah, I think okay. they okay. Google. Was it Grace Jones or someone else? I think so. And they were like, no, actually, correction. I was the first black yeah. person. <laughs> Which is kind of awkward. Yeah. I mean, he did issue an apology. Yeah. But course. yeah, I mean, I'm so tired of this. First, first thing is, yeah, first first that. That. I'm tired of being the first person. It comes with like. It's like being an older child. It comes with a lot of responsibility that you cannot, because I'm saying this as an old child. It was hell, hell. And you don't want to be that person. You kind of want your community with you. And it, it helps. Yeah, it helps. It normalizes that you're amongst people who actually feel the same way as you. Mm-hmm. If there are 10 people behind you or 10 people in front of you, there is still, there's still 11 of you, right? See, that's another thing as well. You've just reminded me, like, when I win, my community wins. Yeah. If another Bangladeshi woman was to stand for local office in Westminster as well, for me, it would be like a win for me as well. Oh my God, I see myself like represented and yeah, exactly. maybe but, hopefully cares about my community. But I've also had like times where fellow Bengali women have kind of been quite, um, haven't been so pleasant towards right, me. Right. Oh, that's a very polite way of putting it. <laughs> have been clearly like holding back. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, what happened to the sisterhood? Uh, like, you know. Oh my and, God, yeah. And I, I just don't understand why there's this. I think it's sometimes in a lot of people's minds, there's this um, understanding or this thinking that, oh my God, there's only limited spaces. Mm. Um, so I don't want her to do better than me. And mm. I, you know, it's like climbing a ladder and just sure. trying to push everyone else out. Yeah. And it's like, no, you don't have to be like that, actually. You know? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Do you have any, like, parting comments or, like, words of advice about being vocal as a woman of colour, as a brown woman, as a South Asian I think you have to be good at compartmentalizing so Absolutely. all the kind of criticism where you just have to well f- firstly you have to just remember why you love doing what you do yeah and just stick with that and always do the projects that you um enjoy and that you're passionate about and if people start trying to box you put you in a different thing and you start feeling uncomfortable then you need to immediately shut that down and just just always remember why the main reasons of what you're doing like the kind of change you want to make or 
you know, why you enjoy it. That should be the first thing because it's very easy to get lost within all the bullshit and when you get so much attacks from people and there's so many obstacles, it's very easy to forget actually why you're doing this in the first place. Yep. And then secondly, I think like, um, yeah, just when people criticize you, you just, of course, it's a bit painful and a bit upsetting, but you kind of just have to say, you know what, there's always going to be people that don't like me and I'm pro- that probably means I'm doing something right and just focus on the positive things um, that are coming about and not don't take it so personally and it says more about them than you. Yeah. I was going to say, um, yeah, like Layla said, if, if you're doing, you know you're doing something right when people are always criticizing you, um, but I think it's really important that, number one, you always remember why you're doing what you're doing. Um, always remember the end goal in mind that you want to make changes for the better. Um, and all, also have like a very close support network. Yeah. You know, you need to ensure that you've got a sounding board. Yeah. So have that friend that you can call up all the time be like, oh my God, you'll never guess what happened. <laughs> because I do that all the time. Even yeah. the tiniest thing, I'll call up my friend Asha, who lives all the way in Atlanta. And, you know, the time difference is like four hours. So sometimes I'm calling her like first thing in the morning, <laughs> right? But I don't care. I called her up and like, oh my God, and someone tweeted this and someone said this and I feel so sad, but it's okay. You need that sounding board. Yeah. And have mentors as well. Yeah, you need people that you can speak to and be like, look, let's say this is being discussed or debated and I need some advice. Mm-hmm. You always need that. Mm-hmm. And you need people that are going to hold you accountable as well because it's so easy just to get wrapped up in everything and kind of forget you know, what the purpose of, you know, what, what your purpose is. So number one, make sure you always have friends that will hold you accountable. Make sure you have a sounding board, someone that you can speak to and rant and rave and kind of like iron things out with. Mm. Um, and, and also I think it's really important to take time out every now and then. So every, whether it's once a week or every couple of months, you need to take that time out where you just switch off your social media. Well, yeah, social yeah media. delete your so, apps for a bit. Yeah. Take a break. I never delete my apps. I'm too lazy to read. Um, you know, like, I've done it a few times, but no, I, I can't I, do it now. I'm too addicted. I just put my phone away for a couple of hours or for a whole day. And everyone's like, where's Lisa gone? But yeah. It's good. It's important, yeah. isn't it? 